Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today it's my interview with baker Nancy Silverton. She shares her favorite tips for angel food cake and bread pudding and tells us about the time she made Julia Child cry. I thought that I had burnt her, and I was, you know, just sort of taken aback when I saw these tears streaming down her cheeks, and all she had to say was, this is a dessert to cry over. Now that is the ultimate compliment. Later in the show, Baking with Nancy Silverton. But first, Joan DeJesus is here to explain the wine world's biggest trend right now, natural wines. Joan is the founder and curator of Wine For Me, a social club for wine lovers in Brooklyn. Joan, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. So, natural wines. Um, I remember one of the first wines I had was at a little sort of modern bistro in Paris a long time ago. And it was cloudy. And I have to say the taste was surprising. It was fresh. It was vibrant. But I, I don't think it had 
it didn't have that long tail. It didn't have that sort of depth I was used to where it took a while to kind of get all the flavors. So let's let's start by defining a natural wine. I assume this means it has to be from organic or biodynamic grapes? Is that is that the starting point? Yeah. So I think there's different kind of categories of natural wine, right? Natural is no branch was introduced that wasn't originally there. Uh, no additional additives were added. The winemaker let the grape do its thing. No additional rain or water source was added to the environment. So like natural on like that bigger level includes no one's doing anything that the earth wouldn't do. Um, a step underneath, you have biodynamic, which means the winemaking process has kind of followed a, a more authentic way in which the earth would be creating or making either nutrients to the soil or growing grapes. Um, sometimes this means winemakers are adding manure from you know the neighboring farm to the grapes. Then there is organic wine, which really doesn't speak to the winemaking process. It just means the, the grape itself is organic. I've talked to people many times about, you know, how to buy wine or how to choose wine. And the conclusion I've come to is just it's too bloody complicated. <laughs> so let's assume I'm listening to this and I want to try a couple of bottles of natural wine. How give me the short guide to buying natural wine. Yeah, there's a few kind of pointers that I can share. Um, one, get to know the people who are bringing natural wine into the U.S. So uh, what I mean by that is distributors. There are some sort of larger distributors that carry natural wine producers in their um, portfolio. Folks like Louis Stressner, um, Jenny and Francois, Seb Rowan, um, T. Edwards, and even some micro distributors like Superglue. And then once, let's say, you try a wine from a distributor you like, Look at other producers in their portfolio. You can typically get a good sense of the kinds of wines these distributor is bringing in and the kinds of wines they like by sort of trying out a few of them. But could you give me three specific wines to buy? Yeah. So a few domestic natural wine producers I love. Um, Vinca Minor, based out of Berkeley, California. Um, Donkey and Goat, also in California. And then Forge Cellars. Right here, well, I'm based out of New York, so right here in the Finger Lakes, um, do really, really good kind of bone-dry Riesling um, and cool-climate Pinot Noir. So are a majority of these producers here in the States, or you just happen to prefer the ones here in the States? You know, I think I am trying to experiment and even myself kind of get back into domestic natural winemakers. Um, sure, European winemakers are doing great things, uh, but I think there's something to be said about some of these small producers who are making natural wine right next to conventional winemakers who have so much more uh, plots, so much more um, employees, so much more resources. Um, so I'm, I'm personally drawn to kind of the stories of these smaller producers in the U.S. Who, who are doing cool things in natural wine. You know, there seems to be an interesting issue here, and I, I will side with you on this, but a good friend of mine grew up, his family lived in Paris, and he still buys all his wine from one producer outside of Paris. It's like six bucks a bottle, right? And he gets cases and cases. And he, he told me many years ago, he said, I love it because some years are good and some years are not. It seems to me that the wine industry, you'd probably agree, like Howard Johnson's in its day, right, or like Shake Shack, they want consistency. And, and consumers don't like being surprised, right? They, they want to know what they're going to get. It seems to me that the natural wine industry is the exact polar opposite of that, which is that, you know, they're good years, they're bad years, we're not messing around with Mother Nature. And so there's a, a sense of uncertainty and adventure in all of this. Do you think that plays well in the market, or do you think that's going to be a challenge? Hmm. I think, it, I think it'll play well with certain wine drinkers. The natural wine ethos of respect for the land and being in harmony with nature speaks to kind of like this younger punk <laughs> ethos. Um, I would go back to maybe the, the top of this interview you were talking about. This memory you had drinking this glass of wine in this Parisian cafe, and you instantly connected to that memory, to that place and time. 
And that's what natural wine kind of does. It reminds you of this authentic expression of the terroir, of mm. those winemaking styles. Um, maybe emotionality is the way to go. I don't know. But I do think natural wine has a way of grounding you in, in a memory of exactly where you tried that wine, whether you loved it or whether, you know, you hated it. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I think natural wines do have a more, I don't know if emotional is the right way of saying it, but it's a fresher, cleaner, more direct impact when you taste them. Yeah, I think you end up getting more of the wine in your glass right. versus, you know, oak chips, other added sugars. The winemaker. Yes, right. you, you kind of are experiencing the, the acapella version of, you know, your artist's favorite song, um, kind of stripped down without the theatrics. It's like Woodstock versus Madison Square Garden. Yeah, you're, you're recording in your basement, not in a massive studio like everyone <laughs> used to do. Yeah, you're going to get two different kinds of experiences from those, right? Something that feels connected to others, the people around you, the, the place versus a large-scale production. Joan, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, and uh, I'm going to go out and buy a couple bottles of natural wine as soon as I'm off the show. Thank you. Thank you. That was Joan Jesus, founder of Wine For Me. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. Her latest book is Home Cooking 101. Chris, before we take a call, I have a burning question. Have you ever had sort of a strange experience in a fine dining restaurant? Um, many, actually, some of which I probably can't tell on radio. Oh, but dear. my best and worst was Freddie Girardet's restaurant in Chrissier, Switzerland, back in the 80s. Oh, gosh. That was considered the best restaurant in the world. Well, it was outside of Lausanne, and you drove out, and it was in this, I think, in March or April. It was a small restaurant, maybe 30 seats, something like that. And here's a guy who worked in this little tiny town. He went to the market to like 4.35 in the morning. And his father had had a restaurant, different kind of restaurant, the same space. You know, he didn't go to Disney World. He didn't do London and Paris and stuff. He just did that. And so I interviewed him in my terrible French. And then I went to eat. Well, the problem was I had gotten a stomach flu. Oh, I was, no. I was feeling awful. And he cooked for us for like two and a half hours. Oh, no. And the food was the most exquisite food. I mean, just absolutely amazing food. Like his tart pastry was literally paper thin, you know. And he had these truffles and jars in the kitchen that were the size of softballs. And oh. it was just amazing. And he was the nicest guy. But here is like the meal of my life. And I was like, you know, not able to fully enjoy it. I just struggled through. But it taught me something about restaurants, though. Here's a guy who didn't care about being famous. He didn't want to be a celebrity chef. Mm -hmm. And he had a small restaurant in the little town where he grew up. And the food was just exquisite. Yeah. That's the best restaurant experience you can have. You're absolutely, I couldn't he, agree with you more. It's just about the food. It's not yeah. about anything else. Right. Anyway, right. so let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Ian. I'm a junior at Oberlin College, and I'm the bread maker for a student co-op. Oh, wow. That's a big job. Is it a fun yeah. job? Oh, it's great. So I make bread for 70 people every week. What? Yeah. Okay. Well, how can we help you? I'm wondering, how do I adapt recipes to larger groups? So it's just me making bread on my own. So I've had a lot of success with focaccia and some of those other breads that I can really easily scale. Mm -hmm. But I've had some trouble with challahs and breads that I need to knead and then braid together and things like that. I'm going to hand this to Chris pretty quickly because he's better at a question like this one. But are you familiar with something called a baker's formula? Yeah. Okay, where the ingredients are given as a percentage of flour by weight. Yes. And you are weighing everything. Yeah. You say the baker's formula doesn't work for some of the recipes you're doing? No, it's not the formula. I found that the, the amount of work that I do is it's just so slow to, to knead 10 loaves that by the time I'm finishing braiding the 10th loaf, then the first one is now overproof. You're braiding loaves for braiding, 70 people? Braiding challah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. For Friday night dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. I don't know. I'm going to pass you over to Chris and see what he has to say. Let's figure out what the problem is. You're talking about an industrial process line where you have lots of loaves, 
by the time you get to the last one, the first one, you know, should have been in the oven already. So is that the problem or is the problem the recipe scaling? Which is the problem? The problem is the industrial process. Okay. So then you need to designate an assistant <laughs> who will start putting the bread in the oven when it's properly proofed. Let me ask another question. So are most of the time you're doing fairly simple loaves or are you doing yeah. a lot of, yeah, okay. Focaccia is my kind of go-to because of how easy it is right. to Focaccia is work great. at that scale. You just throw the half baking sheets in the oven, you're great. I think you just have to tell someone they've won the lottery and they're you're now your, do you have an assistant to help you? No, not yet. I got to go grab one. Then. Okay. Well, th there you go. That's... You don't have to braid it. You can bake it, you know, like a, in a loaf pan. But he wants to. All right. I, okay. He's I an artist. Get, the I guy's can, an artist. I can get behind that. No, I just get some, yeah, you, you just need someone to help you. That's all. And make it sound like, you know, Tom Sawyer and the picket fence. You yeah. Know? It's For an sure. honor. It's yeah. an honor. Tell someone they're going to learn how to make and bake bread. And, and learn how to braid. So other than that recipe, was there any other recipe you had trouble with? Not particularly. No. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the recipe that I had the most trouble with. And I think that the process really killed it. There is something you can do. You can do a slow ferment, right? So in a mm. lot of professional bakeries, they have the big racks and they go into a cooler, which slows down the proofing process. What I would do is braid these and then the first ones I might put in a cooler environment if you have such a place. And yeah, slow, yeah, the walk-in. Yeah, put it in the walk-in and put it on one of those roller things and let it sit. And then, then when you're ready, you can bring it out. It can finish proofing. That's what I would do. That solves your problem. Yeah, Ian, that's great. Ian, I'm very impressed by you from start oh, to finish. You. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Wow. Okay, well, let us know. I think that was a very good suggestion from Chris. Let us know how that goes. I think the assistant's better because you yeah. can, you know, make, <laughs> make a friend. Yeah, more fun. More fun. Yeah, I will. Ian, take care. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, bye. bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you need some inspiration in the kitchen, give us a call anytime. Our number, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855 855- 426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Roseanne. How can we help you? My question is about green beans. Uh, we love to eat fresh green beans, but I have yet to really master that al dente crunch, but without the squeak that um, I've had in restaurants. So I can either get it where they don't squeak and they basically dissolve in your mouth, which my family doesn't particularly care for, or I get them where right. they're kind of al dente, but then they're still super crunchy. So I need some help. Yeah, we have this trouble too. And it goes from al dente, that is inedible, to overcooked in about 20 seconds. You're right. And there's that really narrow little window. So the best way to do it, I do it in a wok, but you could do it in a skillet. I would put the beans in, trimmed, add some water, not a lot of water, put the top on, steam them for a couple of minutes, take the top off, that water is going to evaporate, and finish cooking them in a sauce when you finish whatever you like. But it's a steam, then a saute. The wok is particularly good at this because it's big and it's easy to do, but you could also do it in a 12-inch skillet. So steam it, take the top off, the water will evaporate, and then finish off with whatever sauce you're going to use. Would you add salt to the steaming liquid first? Sure, you could do that. I mean, yeah, that's fine. I'd add a little bit of salt, or you could just add it to the sauce. I mean, usually when I'm doing it, I'm using toasted sesame oil, soy sauce, mirin, little oyster sauce maybe. Or you could keep it drier. It doesn't have to be just a tiny bit of sauce, but with chilies, you know, spices, etc. Or a little bit of butter or a little bit of really good olive oil at the end. Or those things, yes. <laughs> you could do that too. The steaming just gets them pretty much half cooked, two-thirds cooked. And then when you finish it off with the saute, you have a bigger window when they're done. And also you can add a lot of flavor that way too. Years ago when I was a chef at a restaurant here in Boston, what we would do is we would combine the vegetables, whether it was broccoli florets or green beans or carrots cut a nice way, in a large skillet with water and butter. And we'd put the lid on, bring it up to a boil, and then take the lid off, let the water evaporate, and then eventually the butter would either coat the carrots or, if you kept it going, would brown the carrots. And that was sort of a good way to do it. Steam, take the top off, saute, season. Yeah. All right. Okay, we'll give it a try. All, All right, right, thanks, Roseanne. Roseanne. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? 
This is Erin from Chicago. How can we help you? So we have a secret family Christmas toffee recipe that my granny started making when she was young. And my mom and then my sister and I have also been making it every year at Christmas time for many years. And sometimes it cooks up perfectly without issue. But every year, inevitably, at least one of us experiences the dreaded 11th hour separation. So the butter and sugar separate kind of right as it's nearing the end of cooking. So I'm wondering what causes this and also what's the best way to remedy it when it happens? Are you all cooking it in, you doing it all in the same kitchen or three different kitchens or what? It's definitely all different kitchens, different pans, but same kind of saucepan. And the saucepan you're using, is a pretty heavy duty bottom heavy saucepan or is it a thinner inexpensive saucepan? Maybe somewhere in the medium. It's not a super nice pan, but it's not really thin. Okay, so you start with sugar and butter, is that correct? Yes. And you're cooking this slowly and stirring the whole time? 20 minutes or 25 minutes? Yeah, 20 to 30. I'm just going to keep asking you questions because after a while you'll forget your question. Because <laughs> you have no idea what the I, answer is. Because I'm desperately trying to think of an answer. This separation happens towards the end when you think it looks emulsified and then it just separates? So what will happen is as they get warmer, the butter and the sugar come together. And then it looks great for a while. And then, yeah, kind of maybe around the 20-minute mark that this often will happen. Two more questions, then I'll try to come up with a feeble response to this. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You're not changing the type of buttery. It's always like a salted butter from the supermarket. And last question is, how do you know when it's done? By the color. Okay. The one suggestion I would make is I think you can make it with sugar or cream or maybe take out some of the butter and add cream. Cream's homogenized better and won't separate out, and that might be a more stable way of doing this. It sounds like you're doing everything else right. Now I'll turn this over to my my (laughs) co-pilot. equally equally baffled. Two comments. One about the stove and the fact that there's three of you making it and sometimes it works for one and not the other. Do you have gas or electric? We all have gas. Okay, because electric can really be a problem because it cycles on and off even when it's at a temperature that you think it should be. So that's not the problem. Here's another thought. Clearly what's going on with this here is the butter is coming out of emulsion. And what does butter have in it? It has three things. The scum, which is not relevant here, that's the protein solids on the top, the butter oil, and the milk solids. And it seems like maybe what happened is the milk solids evaporated. So the liquid that was in there evaporated. So all you've got is the oil and the sugar. And so eventually, once the sugar is melted and it's cooked for a while, the oil separates out. But the thing about cream versus butter is it's got a higher percentage of liquid in it to begin with. So I think you should try what Chris said, because it seems like it would restore some of the water that's in the emulsion. I would do half, see what happens, if that helps stabilize it. Could you try it and let us know if it works? Totally, Call us back and let us know. There's one other thing you could do. You could make this a family projection for the new year, like Groundhog Day, right? If it turns out well, it's going to be a great year. And if it separates out, maybe that's... Oh, Chris, we don't, that's <laughs> well, too don't dark. No, don't be no, so dark. No, but I, I like it because it's sort of like, you know, it's like vintages and wine, good years and bad years. And, totally. you know, you love both years, but you love some years more than others, right? Right, yeah. and whoever's kitchen it separates in is the one who's... Yes, <laughs> absolutely. You. Yeah. I like that little yeah. extra thing. Yeah. Well, anyway, Aaron and I are dark. Yeah. So, okay, yeah. well, I'm not. All right. So well, there. try cream. Yeah, I agree. Happens. Okay. Thank right. you guys. Thanks, Bye. Aaron. Bye. Bye-bye. Chris, that reminds me of the cake that makes us cry. I think I've told you about this before, and you know what that cake is. What's our, oh, the Genoise? Genoise cake that was a bad recipe from the New York Times. I finally figured out it wasn't me, but my sister and I would make it every year, and it was just horrible. And no. then the buttercream, which involved softball stage and we didn't have a candy thermometer at the time, also made us cry. The whole thing made us cry. Oh, it's terrible what we go through, right? Well, if you really hate someone, just suggest, you know, for your birthday, you'd like a Genoise. That they should make that a Genoise they, they for should me. Make a Genoise. And I'll give them the New York Times cookbook yeah, recipe that didn't like, work. Yeah, yeah, it's like giving someone a recipe without a key ingredient. Right. 
which I've never done, by the way. No, somehow I think you I've, have. I've mm. heard. No, I've never done it. Mm. I know people who have. Mm. Remain anonymous. Mm. Okay, moving on. This is Milk Street Radio. After the break, Nancy Silverton on her favorite desserts. That's coming right up. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. My next guest is baker and chef Nancy Silverton. In her early career, in 1980s L.A., Nancy worked as a pastry chef for legendary restaurants like Michael's and Spago. 
Later on, she founded La Brea Bakery, which became the largest artisanal bakery in the United States. Today, she's the chef and co-owner of Moza Restaurant Group. She recently released a new cookbook, The Cookie That Changed My Life. Nancy, welcome back to Milk Street. Well, thank you. Nice to be here and nice to chat with you. Yeah, just a few minutes ago before we got started, we talked about the fact we're both still around in the food world uh, (laughs) and reimagining ourselves. So I I did want, I've never asked you about this, it's kind of a sore subject, but you had sold La Brea, I guess, and had some money and invested it, and that investment was lost along with many other people uh, and the whole Madoff scandal. How did you find out that money was gone? And then I'm so impressed, as I, I read your more recent resume, all the things you've been doing. Um, do you look back now and go like, I'm glad that happened because my life changed or, <laughs> or not? No, you know what? I, I look back at it as a great lesson in life, and that is those twists and turns, don't let them get you down, you know, because there are other routes that life takes you. And that's kind of what I felt about the whole situation. You asked me how I found out that, you know, one day I had a large bank account and the next day I had no bank account. Um, And it was a very sudden um, disclosure to me. I was actually in a car on my way with three other cooks. We were headed to do an event at Meadowood and I was taking them all to the French Laundry for dinner because they had never been there before. (laughs) And I called my father just to say hello. Now, my father also had um, a lot of money um, invested in Madoff, and he was the first to hear about the loss of that money. And so when I called him to say hello, I could tell by the sound of his voice that something was not right. And immediately, without any segue, it was, you don't have any money left. (laughs) And it's like, what? You lost it all. Madoff was a Ponzi scheme. It never existed. And I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't have a second to really digest. (laughs) Um, It happened suddenly. I did have a few minutes to think, okay, what am I going to do with my reservation for four at the French Laundry? And all I could think about was, I'll keep that reservation and I'll deal with this tomorrow. And that's really what I did. Hmm. But what I have to say is this, is that With the amount of money that I had in my bank account the day before, I could have retired with, you know, with a comfortable life. I could have retired, but I didn't, and I still had a paycheck. And that's what mattered was that I did have that. Had I retired and didn't have an income, then I would have been in bad shape. And so that's what I thought about. It's great. I've got a paycheck coming next week. Um, this story, I, we may have discussed this before. I just want to tell it again because I think it says a lot about you. But uh, Jeff Drummond, who was my producer early on in television and was Julia's producer for years, tells the story about baking with Julia and you made a brioche tart with secret white sauce. And uh, she took a bite and, and tears came to her eyes and Jeff thought that she'd burned her mouth and was concerned. And it wasn't that, it was that it, it was a strong memory that she had from her time in France. But that I think that was the one of the few times she ever got really emotional on any of her shows, right? Yeah, you know, and it's still uh, when people ask me, you know, so what what's the highest achievement that you've had? I always bring back that story right. and say, I was able to make Julia Child cry, you know. And uh, I, too, thought that I had burnt her, and I, too— was, you know, just sort of taken aback when I saw these tears streaming down her cheeks. And all she had to say was, this is a dessert to cry over. Now, that is the ultimate compliment. When you can bring back whatever that memory is, that's sort of the joys of pleasing somebody through your food, when you can do that, because food is emotional. Yeah, and that that recipe is particularly powerful. I don't know why. It's sort of a Zabillon-style sauce. It's It's just phenomenal. Anyway, I, I never had it in France, and I, I still got emotional. Um, so <laughs> you're a chef, a pastry chef, a cook of, of strong opinions. Um, I guess we share that. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite quotes in your new book, um, The Cookie That Changed My Life, is, do we really need matcha in our pound cake? Excellent question. <laughs> um, and I love the fact you've gone through classic recipes and 
fought really hard about them. I, I think people so often do their versions of something or alter a couple of things. But I, I get a sense that you you really went back to ground zero and rethought a lot of recipes. You know, I did, I think, what you did. You took um, dishes that people were fond of, that people made over and over, and you sort of just really looked at them under a microscope and tried to make the best version of those. And that's really what I did, you know. I had decided that really what all I wanted in a baking book was between the covers, recipes that I wanted to actually make, written by somebody that I would trust. And I didn't have to look at the internet and look up peanut butter cookie and then see, right. you know, 750 recipes and then trying to look and see what makes one different. And that's the one I want to try. I wanted to pick up a book, look up peanut butter cookie, look at the recipe and make it. Um, angel food cake. So this is, this is a great example of why I love this book. I've been making angel food cake probably as long as you have. And every, you know, all the time is you don't grease the pan because you want it to climb up and it should be perfect. And you turn it over when it's baked, that perfect dome, et cetera, et cetera. And you said, that's all just complete nonsense. I'm going to do well, it differently. Nonsense. But, no, but, but you wanted, wanted a different effect. Let me put it that yes, way. Yes, exactly. Because I felt like angel food cake was just a vehicle for whipped cream and berries. <laughs> you know, it, and I still think that. I don't like the texture. The flavor of it alone, like a big hunk of angel food cake, is so bland. But I wanted to take, and there are several examples of these recipes, things that I never liked and tried to make myself a fan of. And so what I did with the angel food cake is, firstly, I tried to give it a little texture. And I gave it that texture by greasing the sides of the pan and sprinkling on sugar, right, so that it gave a crunchy crust to the typical no texture in the angel food cake kind of world, right? And then by folding in melted chocolate, not only did it have those um, striations the way a bobka does, but just those threads of chocolate gave a lot more flavor to the angel food cake, and yet it still could be a vehicle for whipped cream and berries. Yeah, but you didn't mention the best part, which is the top is this craggy. Yeah. It looks like the Carpathian Mountains or something. It's got this rough up and down texture, which I think is really appealing. Yeah, it's like, you know, I think anytime something can look homemade, it has a better look than that yeah. one that looks like you just unwrapped the cellophane wrapping, you know. Okay, so let's talk cornbread. Now, you asked the question. Why shouldn't it taste like corn? And I'm I'm kind of thinking, like, I don't think it should taste like corn. Like, get the corn out of my cornbread. But you have a way of making it taste like corn that actually makes a lot of sense. So how do you do it? I understand what you're saying. If And I, was, I did not grow up on cornbread. You know, I'm not from the South. My mother didn't make it. And there weren't restaurants that I went to growing up where I had cornbread. But every time I ever had cornbread, I thought, why doesn't it taste like corn? And why does it always taste like brown sugar or honey? It's sweet, and it doesn't taste like corn. Maybe it's misnamed, but I always felt if a cornbread is called cornbread, isn't it supposed to taste like corn? So I really wanted to do that in this book. And one thing was that I never liked the texture of a cornbread that had whole corn Yeah, kernels. I do not like that. It always felt like I bit into them, and then I wanted to spit out the kernels. <laughs> Right, they kind of got in the way, not the way that raisins do, because I kind of like raisins, like in a carrot cake or something. But there was something about those corn kernels I didn't like. But somehow I got the idea of creaming that corn and straining it, and with all the milk that came out of that corn, the net, you know, when I say milk, we know the corn milk. I wanted to see what would happen if I cooked it down. I thought I would just reduce it and have the essence of right. corn. But what happened was what I had forgotten happens with corn and cornstarch products is that it immediately, when brought up to heat, it became a pudding. And it was that pudding, with a ton of flavor, by the way, that I was able to reincorporate into my batter. And what came out of the oven was a cornbread that actually finally had corn flavor. Well, there are probably millions of us people who think that a cornbread or corn muffin is simply a place to put butter and honey. 
So, I mean, right. that, that's sort of, which is not a bad thing, but I, I would agree with you. That does sound extremely appealing, and I don't know why no one else thought of it. And by the way, I finish it, so after it comes out in the skillet, right, and I let it cool just a little bit, I slather on, so it's not quite melted when it goes to the table, a honey butter, and thyme there mixture. There so there's okay. you get your honey and you okay. get your butter that you were asking for, but beneath that you actually get a cornbread that's not too sweet. It doesn't taste like brown sugar, but it actually has corn flavor. So let's talk about cinnamon rolls. Like, I want to like cinnamon rolls, but they're just so sweet and they're just they're just over the top. But I think you have thought about cinnamon rolls and probably propose a, a better solution? You know, I think so. I too, you know, when I think of cinnamon rolls, I think of Cinnabon. And sure, I've been at the airport when, you know, people that I'm traveling with will buy Cinnabons because they love them. And I'll pull off a piece and I'm like, ugh, sweet, dry. I just didn't understand the appeal. But I was at one of my favorite bakeries worldwide, um, it's called Hart Bakery in uh, Copenhagen. And there they had the most outstanding cinnamon buns. And what they did with them, first of all, the dough itself was a fantastic dough. And then what's layered on there is a cinnamon butter. But what they do, and what they do with so many of their other pastries in Denmark, which makes everything so luscious, is when things come out of the oven, they're soaked in a butter syrup, and it just is life-changing. When you say butter syrup, do you mean is it part sugar syrup and part butter, or all butter? Yeah, it's it's all it's butter. butter. Well, nothing wrong with that. No, nothing wrong with that. Julie would be perfectly happy with that She solution. would be. Um, texture. Bread yeah. pudding has been one of those things I've made for many years, and I've only had one great one in my life. But it had really rustic bread, so there was great texture. And I think you agree with that, that the bread has to be right. Yep. But though you also – I love rice pudding, but you don't. And, but you solve the problem right. because you have a crunchy crust on rice pudding, which I thought was really, yep. really smart. I just am not a fan of rice pudding. But there is that morning pastry in Italy that I'm so fond of, and it is a – Budina de Riso, and it's a rice pudding, but they serve it in a pastry case. And what's so delicious about it, not only is that the rice is not, um, it's a little bit more solid than we think of as a rice pudding, which is more runny, but just the texture of that soft rice with the cookie-like crust, to me, is how a rice pudding works. So I say, how do you how do you make the perfect rice pudding? You put it in a tart shell, you know. Yeah, that's 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 really excellent, Nancy. Um, well, we're gonna have to do this again. <laughs> we are, and you're gonna have to do some baking and come back to me and let me know, you know, your favorites. And if you're a fan of bread pudding, I really like this bread pudding so much. I love the big hunks of bread, especially the ones that stick yep. above the and custard. Have nice and crunchy. But yeah. if you make it, do follow the instructions of it has a caramel on the bottom, meaning just a sugar and water caramel, like it would a flan, not one that has butter and cream in it as well. But and it's also it does have to be baked in a water bath, by the way. Sorry, but it has that caramel on the bottom. And when that bread pudding is done, you've got to then set it in the refrigerator because you have to set the caramel the way you set a flan. Otherwise, it'll just be liquid. And then when you're going to use it, then take it out of the refrigerator, warm the bread pudding up, but that caramel will be the right texture that when you dig deep, you're not going to invert it, but when you dig into the, the mold to get it, you'll get that caramel off the mm. bottom, but it'll have a viscosity rather than just be runny. So you can't eat it right out of the oven. Oh, Lord. That's, that's going to be... But I think it's a great... I'd love you to make that bread okay. pudding and tell me what you think. I think it's a great one. I'm making one. the bread pudding. I'm definitely going to try your cornbread. Please. And then the Kentucky yep. butter cake, which we didn't get a chance to talk about, but that also looked amazing. Uh, Nancy, a pleasure as always. Congratulations on your more recent career and this fabulous book. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure talking to you. 
That was Nancy Silverton. Her latest book is The Cookie That Changed My Life, which she co-wrote with Carolyn Carreño. You can find Nancy's recipe for bread pudding at MilkStreetRadio.com. It's been said that you never really know someone till you have walked in their shoes, and the same might be said about recipes. Which brings me to Nancy Silverton. She's gone back through the American baking repertoire and, like a good scientist, approached each one with a thought experiment. For angel food cake, she asks, what if I greased the tube pan? Well, the cake collapses as it cools, providing a better, less foamy texture. So the takeaway is really simple. Even the most familiar things in life will surprise and delight if only one asks just the right question. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm joined now by Jam Hirsch to talk about this week's recipe, Korean stir-fried chicken with rice. Jam, how are you? I'm doing great. I go to certain places in my culinary travels. You go to others. Never the twain shall meet, I guess. (laughs) Uh, But you did go to South Korea not too long ago, a place I would just love to go to. And you did the, obviously, Korean fried chicken. But you also came across a recipe for stir-fried chicken and rice it's really different than anything I'd ever heard of before. And I guess they have special restaurants that are designed specifically to do this dish. Yeah, it was really a fascinating experience because there were a lot of kind of unexpected moments in the meal. And that's not always a good thing. But in this case, it absolutely was. So what we're talking about is duck galbi. And so there are restaurants that cater to duck galbi. And basically, it's a chicken and usually cabbage and gochujang, the spicy, you know, fermented chili paste. And you can decide whether you want rice noodles or rice dumplings with it. It's a very simple dish. And you make your order. It comes to the table. They cook it for you at your table. And then you eat it. Great. What surprised me was that before we had even finished our meal, because there was still quite a bit of it simmering away on the griddle at the center of our table... The waiter comes back, but this time the waiter comes back with a bunch of additional sauces with freshly cooked rice and some additional vegetables and turns the, can we call them leftovers? I haven't even finished my meal yet, but turns our leftovers into a second meal, a rice-based stir-fry with all the leftovers plus some new veggies plus some new sauces, and it is absolutely amazing and delicious. Just to be clear... I assume you're not suggesting that I cook a stir-fry, make extra, and then all of a sudden turn around and make a second meal. So, right? I mean, you know, I know we're crazy, but we're not that crazy, right? (laughs) No, I mean, you can have at it. And make sure you install the gas griddle in the center of your dining room table. No, we decided to streamline for our version of this. Because, again, Dacalbi is traditionally a restaurant meal. So for our home-cook-friendly version, we adapt it to a nonstick skillet, and we kind of just jump to the finish line. We take all the basic ingredients from the first part of the meal, the chicken, the cabbage, the gochujang, and we combine it with the second part of the meal, the freshly cooked rice, ginger, garlic, some additional veggies— And we just turn it into a one-step stir-fry that really is wonderful. Now the tough question. (laughs) I remember I interviewed a couple who does a wonderful YouTube show about real Chinese cooking and what we get wrong here in America. And one of the things they really got upset about was bad, heavy stir-fries, right? It's supposed Mm. to be extremely light. And so obviously they're using day-old rice because of the starches and it's lighter. This is warm, freshly cooked rice, which I would think would give you a much heavier, moister result. Now, you're going to tell me that's exactly what they wanted, but it's it's a very different style. I mean, a lot of people would argue with you about whether this is the right style or not, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, you know, Korean stir fries are not made from day-old rice, which so much Asian stir fry is based on. In Korea, they use freshly cooked rice. So you are getting a very different consistency in the finished dish. It's freshly cooked short grain rice. So it's going to be stickier. It's going to be chewier. But because of the griddle and kind of the searing that occurs, you're also getting crispiness on that rice. So you get this kind of push and pull of textures in the finished dish. Chewy, sticky, crispy, but also sweet and tangy and spicy from the sauces, the gochujang. And it's really a lovely combination. So, yes, it is a heavier style of stir-fry, but, boy, is it a delicious one. 
J.M., thank you. Korean stir-fried chicken with rice, a very different way of thinking about stir-fried rice, but it sounds equally delicious. Thank you. Thank you. You can get the recipe for Korean stir-fried chicken with rice at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Kenji Lopez-Alt shares his secrets for perfect salmon at home. That's in just a moment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Carrie Spates from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I have an egg flipping trick. What you do is you crack the egg, but hold the yolk and the viscous part of the white in the bigger half of the shell for a little bit, while the less viscous part of the white spills onto the heating surface and cooks. Then you gently lay the rest of the egg onto the cooked part of the white, and that provides a small buffer zone or layer between the yolk and the heating surface so that when you go to flip it, you can get your spatula all the way under it and you have fewer broken yolks because the yolk has not stuck to the pan. Thank you. Enjoy the show. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip right here on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. This is Milk Street Radio. Now let's check in with our friend, Kenji Lopez-Alt. Hey, Kenji, what's going on? How's it going, Chris? Good. Uh, I thought we could talk about salmon today. Oh, boy. <laughs> the, the only fish that America still eats, probably, other than shrimp. 
A can tuna. We eat to can tuna, right? Can tuna. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I live in the Pacific Northwest now. I'm an East Coast guy, but I live up here now, and my kids eat a lot of salmon, which means I cook a lot of salmon at home. And, you know, one of the things that bothers me about cooking salmon, and it's the same thing I think that probably bothers most people, is A, sort of the, the smell you get, right. um, and then B, really the, the spatter and the mess that you get when you're trying to pan fry it. Right. Um, and so I thought I'd talk a little bit about this uh, technique that so it comes initially originally from Japan, but it's very useful for sort of any kind of Western preparation as well called um, shiozake. So shiozake in Japan means, well, shio means salt and zake means salmon. Uh, so it's essentially just salted salmon. Um, in, in Japan, it was traditionally used as a preservation method. And then you sort of broil the salmon and eat it for breakfast with rice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I use it now to cook basically any salmon at all. Hmm. It's very similar to like how you would dry brine, say, a chicken breast yep. or a pork chop or a steak. Yep. You know, you, you salt the salmon. Right. Uh, then you put it on a rack and let it sit in your fridge uncovered overnight. Hmm. Uh, and what happens is that during that time, there's of course, there's some drying out of the surface that occurs. So when you put the salmon down in the pan, you don't get that spatter from right. all the liquid on the salmon kind of mixing with the oil and sputtering around. So you get a much nicer, cleaner sear on it and a cleaner cook. But more importantly, what it really does is it it breaks down some of the muscle proteins. So you know, myosin in particular is a, um, is a protein in the muscles right. that uh, when it comes into contact with salt, it breaks down a little bit and it actually allows the salmon to bind to water a little bit better. So that as the salmon is cooking, there's less moisture loss. It also solves that, you know, when you cook salmon and you kind of overcook it a little bit, or even if you'd properly cook it and you get that white. White, The white ooze. Yeah, the albumin kind of coagulated, pushing out the sides of the salmon. That happens because this protein is soluble in water. And as the muscle proteins tighten up, as they heat up, they squeeze out water that then carries this protein along with them. And that gets to the surface of the salmon and coagulates. And that's why you get that. So if you can prevent that water from sort of migrating out of the salmon, uh, you can prevent that white protein from coagulating on the outside. So this is like koshering a turkey or salting a chicken. It's the same thing. The, the salt draws out moisture. It combines with the salt. It goes back in. It allows the proteins to hold on to moisture better during the cooking process. So it's, it's really a similar concept, right? It's a very similar concept. I would say it's actually more similar to the way you would dry brine a steak in, in terms of the effect it has. What's really interesting I found is that if you actually weigh the salmon fillets, a fresh salmon fillet uh, versus a salted salmon fillet before and after cooking, mm-hmm. um, what you'll find is that from their initial weight, actually they end up losing about the same amount of moisture total. Hmm. But the difference is that with the dry brine fillet, you're losing most of that moisture from the surface while it's resting overnight. Oh. Um, and so the moisture that's left in there stays. And it's, it's, just, it's similar to how when you uh, dry age a steak, right. you know, people will say that oh, a dry aged steak has a um, better flavor because the flavor is more concentrated because there's less moisture. That, that's actually not quite true. If you cook a dry aged steak versus a regular steak, what you find is that a non-dry aged steak will lose a lot of moisture as it cooks while a dry aged steak will not. However, that dry aged steak already lost most of that moisture uh, during the drying process. So the actual amount of total moisture loss is about the same. The difference is that in one case, it comes out before it hits the pan, and in the other case, it comes out after it hits the pan. And you want it to all come out before, because all that moisture does, uh, if it's coming out of the food while it's in the pan, it's just going to rob the pan of heat. It's so you get, steam it takes it. longer yeah. to cook. You get less of a sear, exactly. It also causes um, all that spat, you know, moisture coming out and getting into the oil is what causes the stovetop spatter. Um, so, you know, really, I find that it really mm. neatly solves a lot of these issues uh, that I have cooking salmon at home. And just to remind everybody, how much salt would you, if you take a a center cut piece of salmon for mm-hmm. four people, how, how much salt would you use roughly? Well, I you know, ideally you would weigh it and I would go for around between, around 1% by weight of salt, uh, maybe a little bit less for some people, a little bit more for others, but around that point. Um, if you're not going to weigh it, you know, what I, what I always describe it as, whether I'm salting a piece of salmon or a steak, I describe it as what like a light snow flurry looks like in a New England parking lot, <laughs> which is a, you know, a very specific metaphor, but... <laughs> as, as well you know. But, uh, you know, I, I would season it about as well as you would normally season it if you're cooking. So for a single portion salmon filet, you know, kosher salt... Uh, about a third of a teaspoon is what I would say, maybe half a teaspoon per side. And if you're using regular salt, about half that amount. Uh, and last thing, just to remind people, so you salt it, but that salt mm-hmm. is not removed before cooking. That salt is not removed before cooking. Although, if you are sensitive to salt, you can actually rinse the fillets and just pat them dry oh. before you cook them if you do want to remove some of that excess salt. And 
in terms of cooking method, is this just a basic saute or are you steaming or do, doing something else? The recipe I did was for pan seared fillets. Um, you can, of course, steam it, but you know, steaming I find is actually a great method to cook salmon anyway because mm-hmm. it, it also solves some of those problems. But if you're after sort of the crispy skin right. and a little bit of browning that you get from pan searing, I think that's when this method really shines the most. It's also great for grilling. Kenji, another brilliant way of solving a common culinary problem, which is how to cook salmon and retain the moisture and the flavor and get a nice sear. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me on again. That was Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's a New York Times columnist and the chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats. He's also the author of The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. That's it for this week's show. Please don't forget you can find more than 250 episodes of Milk Street Radio at our website, MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about Milk Street at 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member and get thousands of recipes, access to our online cooking classes, and also get free shipping on all orders from the Milk Street store. You can also learn about our latest cookbook, Milk Street Simple. Please check us out on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinzibaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.